Dear brethren, I think that while it's not a pleasant meditation, it is an important one. We live in a world that is at enmity with Christ. I've said this before, and I'm going to repeat it here this morning. We're at war. We have to remember this. And as we examine the span of church history, we see that this warfare has gone on ad nauseum. Consider, for example, the persecution of the Christian church in the third century under the emperor Decius, who followed his predecessor, Philip, Philip, who is believed to be a Christian, and because it was believed that he was a Christian, this provoked Decius to great anger because Decius saw that Christianity was rising and paganism was diminishing. And so Decius decided, therefore, to eliminate the Christian religion, as is reported in John Fox's Book of Martyrs, The heathen citizens, Fox writes, of Rome were eager to enforce Decius's decree of killing Christians, and they believed that this would be beneficial to the empire. Why? Because, as we've said before, they believed that the support of the nation and the support of the annual yield of crops and everything else in life and society depended upon the devotion of the people to the gods. And it was during this persecution, the martyrs, John Fox says, were too numerous for anyone to record, but he says, here are a few of them. And so he mentions a young man named Peter, not the apostle, this is another Peter, this is the third century A.D., One young man, Peter, who was known for the superior qualities of his mind and body, he says, refused to sacrifice to the goddess Venus when told to do so. In his defense, he said, I am amazed that you sacrifice to an infamous woman whose debaucheries your own writings record and whose life consisted of such perverted actions as your laws would punish. No, I shall offer the true God the acceptable sacrifice of praises and prayers. When the governor of Asia, whose name was Optimus, heard this, he ordered that Peter be stretched upon a wheel until all his bones were broken, and then he was beheaded. Then there were examples of those who professed faith in Christ and who were persecuted and executed, but they recanted. One individual whose name was Nicomachus was brought before Optimus in order to sacrifice to the pagan idols. He refused to do so, and therefore he was immediately placed upon a rack, and after enduring his torments for only a short time, sadly he recanted his faith in Christ. As soon as he was freed from the rack, he was seized with great agony and fell to the ground and died. Then there was the case of 
Denisa, who saw this tragic event with this man who recanted Christ, Denisa was just a six-year-old girl who trusted Christ. And when this man who recanted Christ died, she said, why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? Optimus heard this, and he called upon the girl to come to him. And when Denisa confessed that she was a Christian, he had her beheaded. Let me say it again. If we think for a moment that we live in a different world than this one, we're deceived. This world, if it were fully given over to its own depravity and sin, as it was in the first four centuries of the Christian church, this world would go back to such brutality against those followers of Jesus Christ. Do not be deceived. Even as we've been studying through 1 Timothy, and we were reminded of the fact last Lord's Day that Timothy was ministering in the city of Ephesus, and remember, he was in that city where there was this magnificent temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. It was one of the seven great wonders of the world. People from all over the world came to worship this idol. Imagine being a pastor in that city. So it should be no surprise to us that during the festival called the Catagogion, the pagans, as they went about in their procession during this festival, were met by Timothy, who rebuked them for idolatry, and they responded by seizing him, beating him with clubs, and he was so badly beaten that he suffered for two days and then died. Imagine being beaten so badly that you suffered for two days, and then died. But mark this. The only thing that matters here is that Timothy, in offering up his life as a sacrifice for Christ, passed from this life into eternity as a pillar and support of the truth and nothing but the truth. That's our calling. Our calling is not to live a life of ease. Our calling is not to find ways to get along with this world that is at enmity with God. Our calling is to live and act like the household of God, which means that we are knowingly and understandingly living out our lives as children of God who are imitators of our Heavenly Father. Paul says this, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When we live for the Lord, we are a fragrant aroma to him, to the world, we're a stench of death. But the only thing we need to be concerned about is being a fragrant aroma to our Lord. That's all that matters. Also, as we have been setting, we're the church of the living God. 
That's right, the living God, not the dead idols of this world, but the true and living God and creator of the heavens and the earth. And so we're to herald him, exalt him, while we mortify the idols of this world. It sounds simple, but it can be quite difficult. Especially as we see the influences of the world, which often creeps in unnoticed into the church. And finally, as we said last time, we're to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And so we're to herald and uphold the message of God's word and nothing else, the centerpiece of which is the Lord Jesus Christ above all. Now, brethren, consider this. This morning, we're about to partake in the Lord's table. And I want us to remember that this is a moment, an opportunity for us to consider whether or not we're conducting ourselves as the household of God, as the church of the living God, as the pillar and the support of the truth. Because when we read in 1 Corinthians how it is that the Corinthians were abusing the Lord's table, I would submit to you that they were failing at all those levels. The instructions that Paul gives before he gives his instructions regarding the Lord's table are rather sobering. He says, I do not praise you because when you come together, you come together not for the better but for the worse. When you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, he says, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. This is a hard epistle. This is a hard rebuke, but it was a needful one. Why? Because the church at Corinth was called to be and act like the household of God, conducting themselves as children of God, but instead they were just selfish siblings who were fighting with one another. And instead of conducting themselves as the church of the living God, mortifying idols, they were importing the idolatry that surrounded them, which was corrupting their worship. And instead of being the pillar in support of the truth... Corinth's banner was obfuscated by greed, pride, selfishness, in a word, hedonism. You know, it's striking to me how easy it is to destroy and corrupt the beauty of the body of Christ. It doesn't take much. I oftentimes think to myself, it's like a gentle, beautiful flower. You know, God made flowers in part out in such a way that they're beautiful by virtue of how, how fragile they are. You take a, a, a flower in your hand and you hold it very carefully and you realize that it wouldn't take much just to accidentally crush that thing and destroy it. 
Such is the beauty of the unity of the body of Christ, and such is its frailty, should we fail to uphold our responsibilities in the church. Now, last time, as I said, we were in 1 Timothy 3.15, considering the reality of our being the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And then we got to verse 16, and I only summarized that verse briefly, but really intentionally, because I wanted to come to it here this morning, especially as we're here before the Lord's table. Because it's here that Paul says, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? Well, that which was the mystery in former times in the Old Testament is consummately revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is our greatest model of piety and godliness? It's right here in Jesus Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Briefly, I want to survey that song. That, 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 that is a chorus. It's a song. We sang really in part, a part of that in the form of a hymn, Last Lord's Day. But I want us to review this song because this is the capstone of what Paul has been teaching. He's been talking about how we, remember, ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And then he gives us the example of piety that we're to follow. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ in view of what is revealed in this song. So here this morning I want us to think about what is revealed regarding the godliness of Christ And everything that is expressed in this song. What is first said in this song? The first thing that is revealed regarding the godliness of our Savior is this, is that he was revealed in the flesh. What do we see in Scripture time and again whenever we contemplate the incarnation of Christ? We see the beauty of his humility and condescension. So, for example, when we go to the Gospel of John, which we've discussed before... John, unlike the other genealogies in the gospel, he goes beyond Abraham, he goes beyond Adam, he goes all the way into eternity even before the creation of the heavens and the earth, showing us the glory of the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was prostontheon, face to face with the Father, and the Word was God. And then John brings us to that remarkable verse in verse 14, bringing us from the the glories of heaven to this earth. And he says, and the word, what? Became flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, there are several words that, Paul, that, excuse me, that John could have used to depict and describe the, the condescension of Christ with respect to him becoming flesh. There are different words in the Greek to, that could have been used. The word bios, which speaks of our bodily composition. The word soma, again, it's a reference to our bodies. But here he uses the word sarks, sarks which just simply means flesh. And it's the most basic term that speaks really to the issue of our frailty, the frailty of human flesh. 
This was a doctrine that was very difficult for people to comprehend. How can the eternal almighty God become flesh? Among the Greeks, they believed that the sarks of the human body was inherently evil. Plato taught, and there we taught, refer to this as Platonic dualism, where we, they believed that the flesh was inherently evil. And so it was really kind of a, a confusing thing to say that Almighty God came in the flesh. So the idea here is, is among the Greeks, is to say, well, how, how can that be? God became evil? No. But the word became flesh, which speaks to his becoming and subjecting himself to the frailty of human flesh, but without sin. This is the key divide, the key boundary line that has to be maintained. Otherwise, everything is destroyed. In the early church, this was an issue, that there were teachers which presented a kind of a proto-Gnostic doctrine which denied that Jesus came in the flesh. They couldn't handle the idea by virtue of the idolatry and view and ideology of, of Hellenistic thinking and Platonic teaching. They couldn't handle the idea of God becoming flesh. And so they denied, some denied, that he in fact came in the flesh. John says in 1 John 4, he says that there were false prophets who have gone out into the world by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, he's saying if you deny this, you're a false teacher, a false prophet, a, pro a false messenger. It is important that we understand that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he did so without the defilement of sin. But I say to you again, this central and crucial doctrine, the fact that Christ was revealed in the flesh, shows us that Christ did all that was necessary so that we would have access to God. And this took humility, infinite humility and condescension, grace and mercy from our Lord. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 reminds us of the fact that we have this great high priest, Melchizedek, who came into this world, became flesh, died on the cross, and accomplished all that was necessary so that we would have access to God the Father through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So he therefore says, draw near with confidence. He says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. At any time, we can access our Lord through the intercession of Christ, who is our great high priest. Dear brethren, I would say this to you. Sometimes I talk to people and they say, you know, I just feel like I can't pray to God. Because I just feel like I'm not good enough. Or maybe because they're so weighed down with sin or the burden of sin that they feel like as if they can't go to God. That You have to undo that thinking. We're all sinners. Sometimes we're committing sins that we're even blind to. 
We have to understand that we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ, through our great high priest, and we cannot enter into the presence of the Father through our own merit or worthiness, ever. It is solely by his merit that we enter into the presence of the throne room of grace and mercy. And mark this, we have access at all times. And this is so because of him who was revealed in the flesh. And we're called to imitate the one who came in the flesh. As we consider this great mystery of godliness as was revealed and manifested in the person and work of Christ, Paul showcases the humility of Christ and reminds us of this truth in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, verse 3, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Each and every day in which you wake up and you consider the question, how shall I live? Live in the pattern and example of the Lord Jesus Christ who came in humility and gave up his own life. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we do that, then we won't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but then we'll be able to consider the needs of others as being more important than our own. The mystery of godliness, which is revealed in Christ, he is our example. Then we come to the second statement in the song. Not only was he revealed in the flesh, but he was, it says, vindicated in the spirit. This is an interesting expression because the word vindicated, and I didn't uh, look up all the other translations, but my translation has the word vindicate. This comes from the word dikaios, which means righteous or just. And we've talked about this word before, but this bears the idea of a standard of measurement. And we have to understand something about the idea of God and the, the subject of justice or righteousness. God doesn't merely possess justice and righteousness. He is justice and righteousness. He is the standard. And because of this, we know and understand that he who was revealed in the flesh, that he was vindicated, it says, in the spirit. Vindicated. Or we could say justified. Justified in the sense of in the courtroom of God, in the courtroom of all that is adjudicated, that we can adjudicate with respect to the life and work of Jesus Christ. Everything that he did, we see through, through the truth of the word, Everything that he did was righteous and true, and he always stood for true justice. He never bent himself to the whims and preferences of the world, but always represented justice. Why? Because he is just. 
Again, we live in a world that claims to seek justice. We hear people marching in the streets saying, no justice, no peace, which is another way of saying, if we don't get what we want, we're going to get violent. That's a remarkable statement and chant, but it's really a self-incriminating chant. Don't give us what, what we want, we're going we're to start breaking windows, burning buildings. This isn't justice. But I would say to you that as the world makes this kind of boast and claim for a search for justice, this is our opportunity to speak to them about the one who was vindicated in the spirit. We look at the scriptures and we see that there is one who is just, truly just, not according to the standards of the word, but according to the singular standard of Almighty God. By the way, this concept is important because it is repeated in Scripture. When David is crying out to God, in Psalm 51 and verse 4, he says, Against thee, the only I have sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified... When thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. What is he saying there? He's saying, acknowledging the fact that his sin is real, and yes, other people are impacted by our sins when we sin, but the ultimate person that we have to answer to is the God of all justice. And David just lays himself out before God and says, I've sinned ultimately against thee. And that's why you're just when I stand condemned in your sight. By the way, this is the same text that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3 when he says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. I don't know if that'd make a good Hallmark greeting card or not, but, uh, you know, every man is a liar. I got bad news. Here's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is we're all liars. The good news is, is that God is just. So we don't have to live in a world of just these subjective ideas that are produced by men. We can go to the Almighty and know and understand what justice is and see and understand that justice was served when Christ died on the cross in our stead. And it says that he was vindicated in the Spirit. Vindicated in the Spirit You know, this really calls to mind what Jesus taught the disciples in John 16. In verse 8 he says, And he, speaking of the Spirit, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he explains this. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Mark this. The Spirit who vindicates Christ reveals to men and exposes men for the sin of their rejection against Christ. Rejecting Christ is not some sort of a, just a bad idea. It's sin. It's sin. It's rebellion against the Almighty. And then he says, in concerning righteousness, he says, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Even though Christ is at the right hand of the Father in glory, 
The standard of justice remains here on the earth, and the sword of the Spirit, which we possess in our hands, this is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The standard of justice is here and now and is living and active, and as we share the gospel, we are sharing God's standard of justice with others as mediated by the work of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, I say it again, when we witness to people, we need to understand that it's not just a matter of sharing the words of the gospel with people. We need to pray that the Spirit of God would open their eyes so that they would see their need for Christ because the Spirit of God reveals the justice and righteousness of our Savior. And then he says, in concerning judgment, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The devil stands condemned, and all those who reject Christ stand with the devil. And they have to understand this. I I know I'm repeating myself, but we have to let people understand that there is no neutral ground. And those who say or imply or infer that there is some ground of neutrality where they just say, you know, I just would rather not weigh in on this subject, you have to let them know God will weigh in on you. And it's either going to be one or the other. There is no neutral ground whatsoever. Christ is the revelation of the mystery of godliness. And as he is the only standard of justice, we need to proclaim him. We need to proclaim him and tell others that justice was served when he died on the cross in our stead. Thirdly, we're told in the song that he was beheld by angels. This is fascinating. I, this is something that I have to, I've been thinking about and studying and praying about, but this is such a remarkable concept that we're told in many different cases and occasions that, that Christ is the object of worship and adoration of the angels. Why is this an important point? Well, I've already pointed out bef- uh, at, uh, earlier, I've already pointed this out beforehand, that the Jews, in view of their Jewish oral traditions, exalted the angels far above their station. Their oral tradition really kind of went crazy in terms of this idea of speculating about the the power and the authority of the angels, speculating that God had a council with the angels when it says that uh, let us make man in in, in our image. The Jews believe that he's talking to the angels. Say, how do we do this, Uh, angels? Let's talk about this. Let's let's make man in our image. No, this is a Trinitarian declaration of creation. God isn't looking for permission or advice from the angels. And remember, there was the mythology of the angel Metatron, who was believed to have a power and authority that was on par with the Almighty himself. And you keep that in your brain, and you read texts like Hebrews chapter 1, you see and understand why it's so important that Christ is the object of angelic worship. This is key. The author of Hebrews begins his entire book with this point. What are the angels doing with respect to Christ? What is the comparison between these powerful angels? Yes, they are powerful, and they do bear the authority of God, but they are created beings. 
And that distinction has to be maintained. And so he begins with this declaration, For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Quoting from Psalm 2, and then he says, quoting from 2 Samuel 7, 4, I will be a a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Showing the reality of the supremacy of Christ as the son of God. And then it says, quoting from Psalm 97 and verse 9, he says, and when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God do what? Worship him. Worship him. Then, quoting Psalm 104 and verse 4, it says, and, the, and to, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And then he moves on from quoting Psalm 45 to Psalm 102, where he says, thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God thy God, in reference to Christ, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness, above thy companions. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the world, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they will all become old as a garment. And as a mantle, thou wilt roll them up as a garment. They will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Psalm 110. I I know I'm repeating myself, but Hebrews is basically a survey of the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews wants his readers to understand this principle at the very beginning. The angels are powerful. They are magnificent. They are glorious but they pale in comparison to Almighty God, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the capstone of the first chapter comes when he says of the angels, he says that they are ministering spirits. Liturgica. Liturgica. What is he saying? Ministering spirits. Sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. The word that he uses there, liturgica, speak, speaks of the idea of servants who served in the temple, in the tabernacle, for the worship of God. All the servants who labored in the temple, they served one purpose, and that was to exalt the one who is the object of worship. That is the Lord God himself. And so he's basically saying, here are the angels. You know who they are? They're just ministering spirits. But they're serving to the end of those who are saved by the power of the Almighty. He is the Savior. Angels are just servants. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So as the angels... Behold the glory of Christ, worship him, exalt him, serve him. We look to Christ too. Brethren, I would say to you, again, there's something that's so beautiful and simple about the Christian faith, and yet it's so easy to mess things up. But mark this. Your daily responsibility and calling is to fix your eyes 
on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We follow him. Our goal is to imitate him. I have more to say about that later. Then the song tells us, it teaches us that that he was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. But then that part of the song should remind us of the fact that our Lord is a merciful and gracious God. He abounds with compassion and mercy. We have to understand a very simple and basic idea. God doesn't owe us salvation. He doesn't owe the world the gospel or the sacrifice of his son. He gave this freely. He freely gave his own son. Not out of some obligation to us because we were somehow worthy of this. I've heard some preachers preach as if somehow humanity is so worthy. No. If you tell people that, they turn the gospel on its head when you think that way. Now, the fact that God the Father sent his Son, and the fact that we are now the church to proclaim this message of the gospel, this is a revelation of the nature of our God as being merciful and compassionate. He delights in the repentance of the sinner. He delights in extending mercy to the sinner. And it is our privilege to be messengers of that message of mercy in Christ. And so how how far out are we to go with this message? Jesus said to his disciples, he says, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Take the gospel as far and wide as you can take it, in other words. When we jump to the end of the book, what do we find? The end result of this proclamation of the gospel, the result of all this is is that there will be men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who will be redeemed by the shed blood of the Lamb. And how many will that be? John says in Revelation chapter 7, he says that it's a great multitude that he saw with his eyes in this vision. He says, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. I don't know how many that is. You know, one of the reasons why when I talk to people about the atonement of Christ, I don't use the language, the, 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 the label limited atonement. I've never really been a strong fan. I'm not opposed to it. I just don't prefer it. Um, I read texts like Revelation chapter 7 where John is saying, you know what, I, I, I looked and I, I, nobody can count this. I mean, God knows the number, but I'm a mere mortal. I can't count this. So when I refer to the atonement, I refer to it as being an extensive atonement. One of the reasons why I do that is if somebody wants to have a fight with me about limited atonement, I just say, well, I believe in extensive atonement. They say, I've never heard of that. I said, let me just read a text to you or a few texts. Let's read together. 
But look at the manifold grace of God in redeeming a great number of humanity, and he didn't owe it to even one. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then it says he was taken up in glory. And in some sense, we end where we began in the song. I say that because not only is the incarnation a revelation of the humility of Christ, but even his exaltation is... Because the author of Hebrews reminds us that he, he, Christ, did not glorify himself. He didn't exalt himself. He didn't glorify himself so as to become high priest. But he who said to him, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. The father glorifies his son. The son emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then it says in verse 9, therefore also God highly exalted him. The path to his exaltation was his own humility. This is the mystery of godliness revealed fully and sufficiently in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are many more exhortations that are on my heart and mind, but in view of time, in view of our time, I'd like to have you look at, with me at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says this, he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes, he says, on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says this in verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. There are several occasions in which the author of Hebrews tells us to consider Jesus. And in these passages, he says in verse 2 that we're to fix our eyes 
on Jesus. And then he says, consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. That word weary is the same word that James uses when he speaks of the individual who is afflicted in their soul. It is a weariness of the soul such that the elders are to pray for that individual, laying hands on them such that that person in the indicative verb will be healed of their weariness, their distraught spirit, we would say, their canon. Why do I mention this? Remember, the author of Hebrews is writing to a distressed and afflicted people, persecuted by the world around them. And he was very concerned about them not becoming disheartened, becoming weary, and losing heart. And the solution to this, he says, is to fix our eyes on Jesus and consider him. Fix your eyes on Jesus, consider him. Look at him, think about him. And consider the work that he, finished, he accomplished on our behalf. Brethren, I want to say one thing here this morning, and I hope it is a blessing and encouragement to you. It might sting a little bit too, but if you have ever been told or have been led to believe that there is some sort of a quick fix in the Christian life, where you can just maybe read a book or go to a seminar or pray a prayer and suddenly your battle against sin is just going to come to an end. If you have ever been led to think that or if you've had people maybe suggest that, forget it. The author of Hebrews tells us that we're in this to the end. He says, let us run with what? Endurance, the race that is set before us. How long does this race go on? Until glory. So what are you going to do? You know what you're going to do? You're going to get up tomorrow morning and you're going to say, I'm in the race again. And I need to fix my eyes on Jesus. And I need to consider him. Because if I don't, I'm going to become weary in my heart. Those are the options. You're either fixing your eyes on Jesus and considering him, or you're going to become weary. This is a long race. It's not a short sprint. But God has given us the grace and he has given us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness so that we can go to the end as we look to Jesus. And even as we come to this table here this morning, I say to you that it is crucial that we approach this table not with a callous spirit or a casual spirit, but that we would do so with a solemn heart that says, Lord, I don't want to dishonor you in this table. For Paul warns the readers at Corinth, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I would suggest to you, brethren, if you're not prepared to partake of this table, don't partake. 
or at least do this. Take the time to pray and confess whatever sins that might need to be confessed. Again, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess our sins. But whatever you do, don't come to this table and don't partake of these elements without first contemplating your own heart and soul along the way. I'd like to ask the ushers, please, to come.